0: Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We are in part two of our two part series. The title of this message is Nebuchadnezzar, Cut Down to Size. Now, I had many of you tell me after the service last week that you were reading ahead. Now, confess. Confession time, folks. Raise your hand if you were reading ahead last week. Oh, a few of you, yes. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that today. And for those of you that missed it, don't worry, you'll get caught up. Because in Daniel chapter 4, we have a dream that Nebuchadnezzar experiences. Now, I'm one of those people that never remembers my dream, but I'd like to think that I would remember this one. This dream was so vivid and so powerful that it shook Nebuchadnezzar. And he sought answers to the interpretation of his dream. What was the dream? He saw a tree. A mighty tree. A huge tree. The branches of which could be seen from the ends of the earth. And this tree grew up mighty and strong. and could be seen for miles. A tree that gave shade and sustenance to all the animals below it and the birds of the air. And then an angel, he saw an angel appear out of heaven. And the angel said, cut down this tree. Take off its branches and its leaves and its fruit and scatter the animals below it and the birds above it and put an iron and bronze clamp, a cover over its stump." And while that tree was clamped, Nebuchadnezzar had another vision. This time it wasn't of the tree, but rather of a man who was acting like an animal. Like a beast. A man who had the heart of an animal. A man who was eating grass like an ox. And the angel proclaimed that this beast of a man Would exist for seven times or seven years. We pick up the story in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar or Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are. For God is a, uh, excuse me, you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. We know that Nebuchadnezzar had been frequently going to the magicians of his day, the astronomers and astrologers of his day, the spiritualists of Babylon, and he would frequently go to them for spiritual advice. And when he had this dream, he went to them. And he realized that they didn't have an answer for him. They couldn't interpret the dream. And so he went to his trusted advisor, Daniel. Daniel was given the interpretation, but he did not wish to share it with the king. Because he knew who it was about. And he was reluctant to say a word, but Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said, Speak! Speak up! Tell me, what is this dream? What does it mean? Verse 20, Daniel begins his answer. He says, "...the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwell, and in whose branches the birds of the, of the heaven have their home. It is You, O King. You are the tree. It is You, O King. You have grown and become strong, for Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and Your dominion to the ends of the earth. Daniel points at Nebuchadnezzar and says, the tree that You dreamed about is You. You have grown up. You've become mighty, become strong. Your greatness reaches to the sky. Your reign to the ends of the earth. And indeed, that was the case. I mean, if you look at history, the world history of all the kings, of all the rulers, it is hard to find a world ruler from ancient history that was more powerful and more mighty than King Nebuchadnezzar. But that power would soon be taken from him. We continue in verse 23. And inasmuch, Daniel said, as the king saw a watcher, an angel, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree, destroy it, leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him, notice the change of pronouns. We went from it, the tree, to him. And let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O King, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew from heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. Daniel goes to the king and says that this tree that then becomes in a a new vision, a vision right thereafter, a beast. This tree, this beast, is... Nebuchadnezzar, And he would soon be driven away from his throne, from his kingdom, like an animal. What, what would this look like? We'll get to that in just a moment. But why? why? Why would God do this to Nebuchadnezzar? Why would He ordain this to happen? Well, He says right there at the end of verse 25, that seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. Gleason Archer had this to say about the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar was to learn. He said, This prolonged humiliation would teach Nebuchadnezzar to respect God's sovereignty over the affairs of men and to realize that He, like all earthly rulers, held authority only by permission of the Almighty in heaven above. This was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar was to learn. That he was to be humiliated for a time that he might learn who was in charge. It was not him. It was the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was facing this great and mighty experience that was about to happen upon him. But Daniel, as he continues to instruct him, as he continues to give advice to the king, he gives him some confidence that not all hope would be lost. Notice verse 26. He says, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be assured to you. And after you come to know that, after you come to know that heaven rules, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. You know, when a tree is cut down, um, when a tree is chopped down to its stump, uh, that tree, though if it is alive, will remain in that state for a great deal of time. But if you were to wait long enough, you would begin to notice that tree growing again. Shoots would come out of the stump. And it would begin to return to its form. And in the same way, Daniel indicates to Nebuchadnezzar that that stump that you saw in your dream that was covered with a band of iron and bronze, it would break open again. It would grow again. Nebuchadnezzar would be temporarily cut off from the throne, but his time of removal would be short-lived. Restoration was possible. But it would be contingent on one thing. That Nebuchadnezzar would confess to the Lord, God of heaven, that heaven rules. In fact, even at the present time, God was willing to see if Nebuchadnezzar might have a change of heart. He spoke the words of advice to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel and he said, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. What do you you want me to do, Lord? Nebuchadnezzar says, and the Lord says through Daniel, break off your sins by being righteous. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity, or in other words, a delay of this sentence upon you. It shows that our God is long-suffering. He is so patient. We fail Him time and again, yet He is so patient with us and the question is, are we, are we going to take His advice? Are we going to take His advice when He is showing that patience with us? Think about it. When we, when we willfully sin, and we're habitually in sin, and we're, we're failing time and time and time again, and we look up to the Lord and say, I'm sorry God, I, I failed you again, I failed you again. I mean, when I'm in, the, when I'm in those situations, I keep thinking, my goodness, you know, how, how does the Lord handle me? How does He deal with me? How does he not get so angry with me at a time like this when I fail him time and time again in the same manner? And yet we see over and over again the testimony of Scripture that our God is a patient God. He's a long suffering God. He wants you to succeed, He wants you to come to Him, to turn in repentance from your sin, to turn back to Him in faith. Would Nebuchadnezzar take this advice? Notice verse 28. All this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by My mighty power and for the honor of My majesty? Verse 29 says, at the end of the 12 months, this likely indicates that Nebuchadnezzar did take Daniel's advice for about 12 months. And God, honorable as He is to His Word, He stayed that judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar for 12 months. But like any criminal who thinks they've successfully got away, and eluded the authorities, eluded justice. Eventually, that same criminal will let his guard down. And that's when they get caught. So also Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he had successfully avoided God's sentence. He thought he had successfully avoided God's judgment. And he let his guard down, and he returned to his ways of oppressing the poor, acting in unrighteousness and pride. And the Bible says in verse 28, and all this, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 30. The king had said in his heart of hearts, he said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You know, history attests to the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just the Bible that speaks of him as a prideful king. It's actually attested to throughout all the ancient uh, ruins and and excavations coming out of ancient Babylon. Uh, There was one such uh, ruin that that came out. I want to show you a picture of it. This is the East India House inscription. It is housed in the British Museum in London, and on it is a four-column inscription, cuneiform inscription, in which Nebuchadnezzar's great feats are exclaimed. Uh, It's likely that, that uh, that this artifact... Uh, was housed in a palace or a temple of some kind of King Nebuchadnezzar's, and on it, in one of the uh, in one of the uh, columns, there's uh, an inscription that reads this: "In Babylon, my dear city, which I love, was the palace, the house of wonder of the people, the bond of the land, the brilliant place, the abode of majesty in Babylon." Sounds like a man of pride, doesn't it? Here was a man, King Nebuchadnezzar, who he thought highly of himself. He thought that his house was a house of wonder. It was the bond of the land. It was a brilliant place. It was majestic. And throughout this East India house inscription that was found some 100 years ago, his own accolades of himself are telling we hear uh, much of uh, the, many, the many accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar in history. We, we, you, you may know of the gardens of Semenamis, or, as you might know them, uh, the hanging gardens. They're considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Nebuchadnezzar appointed workers to plant these immense gardens over his palace and over the edifices and the buildings of the great city of Babylon, these lush tropical gardens that he would drape over the palace and over the buildings. that that, that there might be beautification in the city, that they they might cool the buildings. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was determined, therefore, to be the first ever world ruler to create green jobs. (laughs) And maybe the last. I don't know. I don't know. Glad some of you enjoyed that. I put a smiley face as I wrote that. Fantastic as he was at job creation and, accolade, and building up the great city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's pride brought him down. Notice verse 31 it says, "Now I Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, while he was exclaiming his great pride over Babylon, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven." King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men he ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar's transition from a sane person to an insane person was seemingly instant. Now many of you might be wondering, what, what happened to him? Some of you might be skeptical. You might be thinking, well, this this just sounds like a fable. This just sounds like a legend. I mean, come on. Can we really trust what we are reading here in Daniel chapter 4? Come on, Neil. I I know medicine. I know science. I know psychology a little bit. Could this really happen? The answer is yes. It happens today among some of the most strongly mentally disturbed people. In medical terminology, Nebuchadnezzar's disease is known as boanthropy. I've written it there on your outline. Boanthropy, bo from bovine, anthro from man. It is a psychological disorder in which human beings believe themselves to be a cow, literally. This disorder can manifest itself in many different forms of animals, dogs, cats, wolves, horses, birds, in which case, the, most, the more generic term, lycanthropy, is used. Boanthropy, meaning a, a man who thinks himself to be a cow. Lycanthropy, meaning a person who thinks himself to be any animal. Old Testament scholar Raymond Harris recounts a personal experience that he had with a modern uh, case of boanthropy. In 1946, Raymond Harrison visited a hospital, a mental institution, in 1946, in Britain. And he came across a patient. And I wanted to read you. It's, it's long, but you need to hear this testimony. First-hand testimony of a patient that he encountered. This is Raymond Harris Raymond Harrison, 1946, in Great Britain. He writes this. A great many doctors spend an entire pro- busy professional career without once encountering an instance of, of the kind of monomania described in the book of Daniel. The present writer therefore considers himself particularly fortunate to have observed a clinical case of boanthropy in a British mental mental institution in 1946. The patient was in his early 20s, who reportedly had been hospitalized for five years. His symptoms were well-developed on admission, and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He was of average height and weight, with good physique, and he was in excellent bodily health. His mental symptoms included pronounced antisocial tendencies, and because of this, he spent the entire day from dawn to dusk outdoors, in the grounds of the institution. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns with which, uh, with which the otherwise dingy hospital situation was graced. And it was custom, it was his custom, to pluck up and eat handfuls of grass as he went along. On observation, he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds. And on inquiry from the attendant, the writer was told that the diet of this patient consisted exclusively of grass from hospital lawns. He never ate institutional food with the other inmates, and his only drink was water. The writer was able to examine him cursor, cursorily, and the only physical abnorma- abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair, a lengthening of the hair, and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, the patient would have been manifested precisely, would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel 433. From the foregoing, it seems evident that the author of the fourth chapter of Daniel was describing accurately an attestable, if rather rare, mental Affliction, Raymond Harrison, 1946, Great Britain. It happens. It happens today. You can find mental institutions around the world that specialize in lycanthropy. What is more, a 19th century Oxford Christian scholar, uh, Edward Pusey, was curious about Daniel Four. And he did some investigation into this medical condition. And among his many findings, he concluded this. 19th century Oxford scholar, he concluded this. He found that the inner consciousness of a person often remains unchanged despite the fact that their body behaves like an an animal. He studied lycanthropy. Poussey did. And as he studied this disease, this abnormality, he came to learn that those who had come out of it We're beginning to describe how during their time of mental instability, in which they themselves thought themselves to be an animal, a cow, a dog, a wolf, they had an inner consciousness about them that was somewhat aware of their surroundings, that was somewhat aware of what was happening in their body, that their mind was not altogether there, but that they had an understanding in part of what was happening around them what their body was doing, what they were eating, what they were drinking, how they were acting. Later on in Daniel 4, we're going to read that it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven that this disease left him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was likely capable of understanding in part what had happened to him. And of even even communing with God during the time of his mental disorder. I, I go into this, the medicine of it, and the psychology of it, and the science of it, to simply say how careful we are to be in treating the mentally unstable. We're to treat them with great, great love and care. Knowing that, they're, that they're, while their body manifests this abnormal behavior, perhaps their inner person can still see the love and affection that you have for them. And for any of you who have a mentally impaired family member or friend, or you know of someone, show them love. Care for them deeply. Because you do not know whether, as this scholar found, there's a measure of inner consciousness that recognizes the affection and love that you show them. We, we hear stories of people in a coma who come out of a coma and recount How they heard conversations of doctors and of family members in the room while they were in a coma. And how careful are we to be when making end-of-life decisions. I think of the case of Terry Schiavo in Florida not many years ago. A woman of great mental imparity, no doubt. But nevertheless, a woman who was very much alive and responsive to her parents when they visited her. That she was taken off life support was a travesty of great proportion Those who those who advocated that Terry Schiavo should die, they gave a bunch of arguments to the national media, and it was a a story of great importance. And, And those who were advocating for her removal from life support, they gave many arguments. I heard I heard so many. She can't take care of herself. She can't feed herself. Her mind is not developed. Her social interaction is inept. You know, it's interesting. All four of those things that I said could also be described of a newborn. But of course, we don't kill those, do we? Be so very careful in approaching the mentally ill, the person in a coma, the end-of-life decision that you might, God forbid, have to make one day. These are not light and momentary decisions. They're to be made with great care and Daniel 4 provides somewhat of a primer for us to be aware of. This scholar's work behind me provides a primer to be aware of that um, we may not know the extent of consciousness that this person has. Let us be careful and treat all human life with great dignity and respect. Back to the text in verse 31. God speaks from heaven, and He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses." That that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown out like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now what does it mean that he was driven from men? Did you take note of that? That he dwelt with the beasts of the field. Do, do we think he simply left the palace? I mean, here he is, the most powerful man in all of ancient, uh, the ancient world. Do we really suppose that upon his mental impairment, he just walked away from his throne? I think it unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar simply fled. Had he abandoned his throne, we would expect to have seen Babylon appoint a new king within a short period of time. But the Bible says that seven years passed with no record of any new king in Babylon. I think it probable that the palace officials were probably very much aware of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Like any world ruler today, Nebuchadnezzar undoubtedly had security guards, he undoubtedly had personal handlers who would never leave his sight, and were they to immediately notice a great change in his demeanor, in his psyche, it's likely that they would have pulled him aside back inside the palace and attended to him. When he was stricken with insanity, it's likely that they brought doctors to him. Spiritualists from Babylon, no doubt. That they shielded him from public view and that they tried to treat him. And it's not far-fetched by any stretch of the imagination for us to suppose that among those who came to treat Nebuchadnezzar was the prophet Daniel. In fact, the very fact that no king ascended to the throne of Babylon for seven years, is perhaps indicative of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's officials, they heard Daniel's testimony. They heard Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And they believed him. Had they disbelieved him, there would have been a fight for the throne. But instead, Daniel told them that Nebuchadnezzar was eventually going to return. And no lower Babylonian official wanted to be seated on the throne only to have the great Nebuchadnezzar return to power. That would have been a place where you would not have been seated had Nebuchadnezzar come back to his senses. John Walford writes this. He says, It is reasonable to assume that Daniel himself had much to do with the kind of treatment and protection of Nebuchadnezzar and informing the counselors of what the outcome of the dream would be. He goes on to say this, God must have inclined... Nebuchadnezzar's counselors to cooperate, quite in contrast to what is often the case in ancient governments, when at the slightest sign of weakness, rulers were cruelly murdered. It's very well said and gives testimony to the fact that what Daniel had said left an impression not just upon Nebuchadnezzar, but upon all who heard him. In the end, we can only speculate, but it is likely that Nebuchadnezzar was probably taken to one of his many private estates where he could roam freely out of the public's eye. It was there that he would spend his days in the field where his body would become wet with the dew, where he would eat grass like a cow, where his hair grew like eagle's feathers, where his nails grew like bird's claws. And seven years passed. Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps somewhat aware of his surroundings, after seven years, we come to verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar... Remember, I, we, we, I failed to mention this at the start. I, we mentioned it last week. This is a decree. Chapter 4 is a decree to all of Babylon, to all the ancient world from Nebuchadnezzar about his experience. So He's writing now and, and he's, he's recounting what had happened to him. A decree that went out to all the land. This is what he says to his people. Then at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Was this Nebuchadnezzar's uh, moment of faith? It's a, it's a pretty alarming confession. He says, God's dominion is everlasting. God's kingdom is eternal. All of mankind are nothing. God does what He wants and no one can stop His power. It's a pretty fair confession of respect to the Lord God of Israel. Whether it's uh, the moment that He came to faith, uh, I'll let you decide that. The Scripture is silent on that matter. But no doubt it is a great confession of trust and respect for the God of Israel. Verse 36, At the same time, my reason it returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom... My honor and splendor, it returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and His way is justice, and those who walk in pride, He is able to put down. His mind returned as did the glory of His rule over all of Babylon. His officials remained loyal, in large part, I would argue, because of Daniel's testimony. And the last words we read of the life of King Nebuchadnezzar are these, I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all of whose works are truth, His way is justice, and those who walk in pride, He is able to put down. What can we learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience in chapter 4. This is our closing moment in discussing this great king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was no doubt a man of great power and great wisdom, but also a man of great pride. And God took it all away from him. He took all of it away from him. Every last drop. And I ask you this question. Ask it of yourself. Do I think that all I am is because of me? Do you think that all you are is because of you? Because of what you've done? Do you think that that your wisdom is is yours? I have brought my own wisdom upon me. That your power is yours? I I am powerful. I've brought my own power into my life. I've earned it. I've worked for it. Is that your perspective? Do I consider myself indispensable? Indispensable. This was the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. Not a perspective that God wishes any man, woman, or child to have. You know, we give credit uh, to great minds, to great leaders. In college, I remember there were some exceptional professors. And uh, I, I love learning under them. But I do remember, on occasion, some of the students in the class of the exceptional professors. Um, and and these, many of my students, my classmates would uh, they would just hang on every word the professor could do no wrong could speak no wrong and everything the professor said was like gold and i myself had moments where the professors that i most admired i had moments of weakness where i was showing undue praise of a particular professor or speaker or teacher or leader where i would just all i would want to do is, is be his or her understudy thinking that their wisdom was beyond comprehension. Our leaders and our teachers are just men and women. Their minds are enlightened only insofar as God gives them knowledge. And just as fast as He can give it, He can take it. I was recently listening to a CD of another uh, CD, I know. It's really old. It's like 1990s. Um, now it's MP3. Is there something after MP3 that I'm missing? No. All right. Streaming audio, yeah, internet streaming. Thank you, Tom. All right. I was listening to a CD. I know that dates me a little bit. Of another uh, pastor's Bible study, and this pastor, who shall remain nameless, was fielding questions from the audience. And toward the end of the recording, he was speaking about a future Bible study date that was undetermined. And he was dialoguing with the audience, this pastor was, about whether or not they should have this, this Bible study in the forthcoming weeks. Because he himself was going to be out of town. And they, he was dialoguing with the audience on whether or not they should have the study that Wednesday night. And uh, in the end, the pastor was leaning toward canceling the study. And I remember uh, he, he, as he closed out the recording... He was leaning. He was telling the audience that I think I'm going to cancel it, this, this study, a couple of weeks from now, because, in his own words, now he said this: "The truth is, if I don't teach, very few of you will show up." I heard that word for word on a recording from another pastor, and I thought to myself, Neil, don't you ever think of yourself as indispensable? Don't you ever think of yourself as indispensable? Because you are very dispensable. Pastors, teachers, leaders, of all stripes, they are not indispensable. Their very breath comes from God Almighty. And teachers, the Bible says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Remember that you will incur a stricter judgment. That goes for leaders as well. To all of us, be careful about showing undue admiration for any teacher or a professor or a pastor or a political leader. They are mere men and women. King Nebuchadnezzar was a mere man. And his very power and wisdom was taken in an instant and restored in an instant to prove to him that the Most High God of Heaven rules. Our very breath is a gift from Him. Our very knowledge is a gift from Him. And there is no pastor, teacher, leader who is indispensable. The only one who is indispensable is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, the Lord we've learned from the great pride of Nebuchadnezzar. What a story. God, uh, we, we don't want to fall into that selfishness. We don't want to fall into that mode of indispensability. We don't want to suppose that our power is from us That our wisdom is from us. God, we want to exclaim for all to hear that we are utterly dependent upon You. That we're dependent upon You for everything. For all that we know. For our very breath. For our protection. God, we thank You for this this lesson. That we might learn from King Nebuchadnezzar. Learn the lesson that he learned. That heaven rules that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and He does whatever He pleases. Lord, help us come in submission to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.